What's in a name? This is week three uh, of this uh, kind of mini end of the summer series that we've been looking at uh, uh, the church and what it means to be a church. Uh, that the church isn't necessarily a building, uh, which we looked at, and that it is a body, but I'll recap all that in just a second. Uh, but what's in a name? Uh, and so we're not talking about what is Hope Community Church, Lower Town, but what, what does it mean to be a church? And what are, the, what are the biblical descriptors that we have of the church? Uh, and so I started off a couple weeks ago talking about uh, this quote from uh, John Proctor from The Crucible uh, that I had the privilege of playing in, in college, that he, he was signing his life away uh, to the magistrates. He was going to be hung, and he said, no, I'm a witch, fine, I, I, I'm one with the devil. Uh, and they say, sign this, sign this certificate to say uh, that you are uh, uh, one with the devil. And he says, I'm not going to sign this thing. And they're like, why won't you sign it? And he says, because it is my name. Because I cannot have another in my life, because I lie and I sign myself to lies, because I am not worth the dust and the feet of them that hang. How many, how may I live without my name? I have given you my soul, leave me my name. And long story short, he ends up not signing it, tears it up, and he's hung. So that's, uh, but he's not a witch. Good times. Uh, there's power in a name. Names are, are powerful, and, and yet we, you know, and again, in our, in our culture, uh, we don't really have a lot of weight in, in what we, our names necessarily and, and all that. I know they've been changed a lot. Uh, my last name is Silver. Uh, it used to be Silver Smith over in England. Uh, my grandma, uh, Sylvie, she used to be O. Sylvie, and then she, when they came to the United States, she was Irish. When they came to the United States, they dropped the O, and she was Sylvie. And so when she got married, she literally just changed the Y to an R. Isn't that wild? The Sylvie Silver marriage. There's power in a name. My dad, uh, growing up, he always had nicknames for us. Uh, I was called Bug. He always called me Bug, Bugger. Um, I guess because the story is I was very little, and I guess it was one of my first words. I was at the doctor's office, and I saw a bug on the wall, and I said, Bug. And that stuck for some reason. Uh, my sister was always Miss America. <laughs> um, I don't know why. Uh, and uh, my brother, though, his nickname was Jake. My brother always called him Jake. And, and at my dad's, my dad's funeral, you know, back when I was 14, my brother spoke at the, at the funeral. He, was, uh, he would have been 18, 19 at the time. And he told this story where he said uh, he was playing baseball. My dad was, a, was one of my brother's coaches for a long time playing baseball. And and, and my dad kept yelling Jake, you know, Adam, instead of Matt. His name is Matthew. And, and his buddy said, why does your dad call you Jake? And he was like, you know, I, I don't know. I'll, I'll ask him. So he went over and asked my dad, why do you call me Jake? And my dad said, I don't know. <laughs> so, so there was no power in that name. I don't know why it was chosen, although my brother did name his son Jake. Um, Jake's actually with an S. I don't know why. Multiple Jake's. Hopefully my brother's not listening to this. But there's normally power in a name, especially when we get to the Bible. We look at the name of Jesus or Yeshua, Redeemer. There's, there's something about this, this name. And when we get to God and God the Father, that he refers to himself as, as holy. He says, my name is holy. And he's not just saying uh, you can, uh, that, that my name is, is pure or my name is clean as like an adjective. It's a noun. Right, you can call me holy. You can refer to me as holy as a name. There's power in a name. And so just, just to recap, I'm not going to spend a lot of time doing this, but two weeks ago, I uh, looked at what does church, the actual word church, mean that we have in our language. It's not this building. Uh, Mark Dever, a pastor out in uh, D.C., 
uh, in his book, The Church, The Gospel Made Visible, says this, the church is the body of a people called by God's grace through faith in Christ to glorify him together by serving him in his word. It's not a building, it's not a space, as much as I love this church and the space that we get to worship in, it's not this. That if, God forbid, if this space were to burn to the ground tomorrow, we would still have church uh, next Sunday. We'd meet on the parking lot, we'd meet in the park, we'd meet, we'd meet somewhere. Uh, the church is not uh, ever going to fade. I uh, looked at the, the language of the Hebrew and the Greek, uh, that it means to assemble, means to gather, right? It's the word church. It, it literally means assembly. And we looked uh, at all of that. And, and just based on the word and the language around this in the Hebrew and the Greek, that it's God's plan has always been for the corporate body and the assembly, not just the individual, that it's two sides of the same coin, that you have the church, the body collective, and you have an individual, that I have a, a personal relationship with Jesus, but it's never made to be private, that I am part of a body, I'm part of an assembly. Uh, and then last week, Paul, uh, one of our elders, he uh, preached on the body of Christ and looked at this idea. I found this dumb pixel art, whatever it is, but uh, what, was that? What, is that? what was that called? Word art? What was that called? Clay part, thank you. Um, where you have the body, right? It's made up of, of people, and each, each member of the body has to help one another out. And it's not just staff people, it's not just clergy, it's not just governance team or elders that each part makes up the whole. Some parts are visible, more visible than others, but they are all just as vital. Uh, we call our vital organs vital for a reason, and we can't see them. Right? They're behind the scenes, they're doing things that we don't even realize that are going on, and those are vital for a church to thrive. And I'm so thankful for those of you who serve in that way. And honestly, what Paul and kind of his main thing last week too, not to guilt, not to show, uh, not to be a hammer or a law, uh, but want to show grace, but when we don't serve, that we, we, uh, we miss out on an opportunity to really serve the body. So this week, this week we're going to be looking at family, the family of God. And there's going to be a little bit of overlap from what Paul gave last week, but not, not a whole lot using a different passage. But what comes to mind when you think of family? Could be a lot of different things, right? There's a, there's a lot of a lot of different emotions that can come to mind when we think of family. Uh, we can think of of in-laws. Uh, my mom always joked growing up; she always referred to herself as an outlaw uh, instead of an in-law, and that and part of a, a lot of us can empathize with that, right? Uh, love my my extended family, love my in-laws dearly, um, and then and this, I love my family, I love my immediate family, I love my mom, I love, I love my stepdad, I love my brother and my sister. Uh, but I know it was just a couple weeks ago, after the 4th of July, uh, where I went down to my mom's, she lives in central Illinois, and, and uh, in our small group, though, we were talking about, we guys, a lot of times in our small group for accountability, we, we do highs and lows. And it was kind of like, yeah, my high this week was I got to go on vacation down to Illinois and hang out with my family. My low was I went on vacation with my family, right? It just, they're, they're, we just, I love them and we, we have, we, we, we butt heads. We sit around the same table and we argue about things, but we love each other, right? That's family. I just, there's good and, and bad that comes with family. Uh, I Googled cliche family and uh, these were some of the first, first photos that popped up, right? You got the family with their dog. That one seems legit. I don't know, that one doesn't seem, the one with the cat, it seems like they were, they were trying to make it goofy, you know what I mean? Uh, and then the family there with all the white, I recently saw a video uh, where some, there was like a, a person who lived on the beach and they said, oh, the sun is setting, let's count how many families come out all wearing white. Uh, and there was like six families that came out for a family photo on the beach, so I thought that was pretty uh, cliche. Uh, we may think of uh, Olive Garden, when you're here, your family, uh, which I always found ironic. Because uh, when you're here, you're family. You don't need to cook. 
You don't gotta clean. You just pay the bill, and if you don't like it, you can send it back to the kitchen and complain about it, right? Try doing that at grandma's Sunday lunch, okay? Let's just see, let's just see how that goes, right? Uh, no, that's not family, all right? Uh, maybe think of uh, Dom, all right, when you're here. Family, family, that's, that's kind of popping back up. There's like 10 of these movies. I think I stopped at five. Um, but here's an interesting fun fact. When you hear your family by Olive Garden, they actually uh, stopped using that slogan back in 2012. Okay, so it's been a while since they've used that, but, but it's been ingrained into our brains if, if you've ever been to Olive Garden. Um, but they actually sold it, and they spent millions of dollars to have a marketing company come up with a new slogan. Does anyone know what that new slogan is from Olive Garden? It's, go to Olive Garden. <laughs> someone, someone made bank on that. <laughs> But what's interesting is Jimmy Fallon actually then bought the slogan, <laughs> when you're here, your family, uh, because they do a skit and they make fun of the idea that when you're at Olive Garden, your family. So, and he can use that slogan without getting sued by Olive Garden. So, fun facts of the day. There was a study done by Barna, though, when you think about family, I know you can't read this, it's just a little graph, but family, that there was a survey done uh, to a, a large portion of Americans uh, back in 2018, and they said, what, what really gives you your, your most identity? What do you identify with most out of these categories? Uh, last place, it was the city or the town I live in. 16% said a lot. Right? I identify my identity. It was wrapped up in my city or town. 16% um, a lot. If you add all these up, it's way more than 100. So I'm not really sure how this all works out, but... Um, uh, the state is 21%, career is 23%, ethnicity is 23%, my faith is 38%, uh, the fact that I'm an American is 52%, I thought that was kind of surprising, but family, family takes the top spot, the biggest piece of the pie, uh, when asked, what, do you, what most uh, identifies you as who you are and your identity, and it was family at 60, 62%. So, we have this 62%, and I don't know if that's true of us in this room. I know a lot of your stories, and you're, you're, you're a lot like me, right? I, I love my family, but man, we, we can really butt heads sometimes, right? They don't like my career choices. They don't like my spouse. They don't like how I raise my kids. They don't, whatever, fill in the blank. They don't like that I'm waiting to have kids, or whatever the, whatever the case may be. Um, 62%. So when we look at family, and we look at specifically the church, and what the Bible describes and what Christ and what God the Father describes as the family, what does it look like? And how should we interact with one another? I'm going to be looking at Galatians chapter 3, uh, 23, and then going into chapter 4, verse 7, all the way through verse 7. Not a huge passage, but I want to break this down. And I want to look at um, family. So the Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Galatia, says this, Before the coming of this faith... This is faith in Christ. We were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. Uh, Martin Luther, I've got several quotes from Luther only because um, he, he preached this. He's got, he's got multiple volumes of lectures on different years. Uh, some are from the, the 1530s and some are from the 1516s. Uh, where, he, where he preached through uh, Galatians twice, but this was the later time where he preached through this. And so Luther says this about that, that verse I just said. This means, and I, and I love his language here, this means that before the time of the gospel and of grace came, it was the function of the law to keep us confined under it as though we were in prison. 
that we're being held under, we're locked up, we're in chains, we're in fetters, we're, we're locked up under the law. This beautiful and most appropriate analogy which shows what the law accomplishes and how upright it causes men to be. Therefore, it must be carefully weighed. No thief or murderer or criminal who has ever been captured loves his fetters of the foul prison in which he is held bound. In fact, if he could, he would destroy his prison and his iron shackles and reduce them to ashes. In prison, he does indeed refrain from doing evil, not out of goodwill or out of love for righteousness, but because the prison prevents him. That's the law. And I used my really good graphic design degree, I'm just gonna do not have a graphic design degree, to make these images. That you have this scroll, which is the law, and I couldn't figure out how to make a frowny face, uh, so he should be frowny face. All right? He's not happy. He's chained, he's bound, okay? He's under the law, all right? That's what it is. It's this, it's this guardian holding us down. The law screams at us, do this and live, and we go, yeah, I can't do that. Thou shalt not, let's fill in the blank, 10 commandments or anything else of, of what Christ would even have us do to, to sit there and say, I gotta do this, I gotta do this, I gotta do that, and we inevitably find out that we cannot do it. But you know why we do it? You know why a lot of us obey laws or we're good people or good citizens? Because we're afraid of the law if we break it. I'm a man, I'm afraid of what my wife will think of me if she finds out this thing. I'm afraid that I might go to, go to prison if this thing's ever exposed. I'm afraid of losing my job or whatever. So I'm not gonna do that here. Right, I'm chained, I'm bound, I'm held underneath this law. A lot of you know my story growing up, very conservative, uh, fundamentalism Christian. I uh, went to very conservative schools, uh, undergrad and through, um, well, you know, or, sorry, high school and, and uh, through my undergrad, I guess, and seminary. There's a lot of rules, a lot of laws. And I looked at those laws and I thought, oh, if I, if I obey these rules, and I don't go over to that side of campus, that's where the, that's where the evil ladies are after dark, then I'll be better Christian. Right? I'll, be, I'll be better. Now, if there was no rule about it, of course I'm gonna be over there. Right? The law is what holds you down. I'm chained by it, I'm fettered by it. So again, Paul continuing then says this. Before the coming of this faith, just going back, reading this again, 23. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under our guardian. So Paul's gonna use some uh, language and there's some mixed analogies which I'll I'll get into, but we move, okay? It spent, took a long time to make that cross, so don't, don't laugh at it. That we're, we were under, under the law, bound, chained, right? And, and Paul will use this imagery of slavery, that we had no choice but to obey the law and live in sin. We just didn't have that choice. There was nothing there to do. And then we move through faith, through Christ, and I made it a bigger smiley face, because again, I, I couldn't do the frowny face thing. And the language that Paul uses is that we move from slave to son. Now, what's interesting is why does Paul, because I haven't read it yet, but multiple times in the verses to come, the apostle Paul is gonna say the word son, not children of God. 
not sons and daughters of God, specifically son. And specifically that we are no longer male and female, we are sons. Okay, now there's a reason for that. Because Paul in other books of the Bible that he wrote in Romans refers to the same kind of phrase as children of God in Romans 8.16, refers to uh, the same idea as sons and daughters in 2 Corinthians 6.18. But multiple times in Galatians, He's going to continue to use that word, son. Chelsea Stanley, she's an author, speaker from Wisconsin, does a lot of writing for a lot of uh, different Christian organizations, but uh, I think this was from a Gospel Coalition uh, article, if, if you're interested. But she says this, and it's kind of longer, so bear with me as I read this. But she says this, In ancient cultures, sons were named as legal heirs. In turn, husbands and fathers were expected to provide for the women of their households, being a direct heir in society would have been possible, sorry, would not have been possible for the Galatian women, though they would receive a kind of indirect inheritance through marriage. Imagine the Galatian women coming to hear of this new status in God's kingdom as Paul speaks in these otherwise familiar terms. Picture these women hearing Paul's letter read, a letter addressed to the entire Galatian church. In ancient cultures, sons were named, oops, sorry. <laughs> they understood sonship and all that it entailed. So hearing that God had given both brothers and sisters together the status of sons would have blown them away. And again, Paul here is not talking biology. Right? He's not talking about male and female, that, that that's going to end, that's going to go away. No, that's always going to be a thing. But my status now is changed as an heir. That's different. And culturally, that was only sons. God stepped in and radically declared that men and women are one in Christ, equally privileged and exalted, Galatians 3.28, co-heirs together, 1 Peter 3.7. In his kingdom, both men and women receive the full inheritance through faith in him. In his loving kindness, our heavenly father allows us to share in the same inheritance today. While the notion of gender equality may not sound quite as foreign to our modern ears, the mystery of God's unmerited favor and grace should continue to fill us with tremendous awe. We, who were once slaves, are not only sons, but heirs of God. Sisters, this is extraordinary news. So now I'm going to, like Paul, mix my metaphors, and I'm going to totally change this diagram that I made, okay? So forget the old one. It's all new. Same graphics, but it's new, okay? Just... Act like the last one never happened. The top arrow talks about timeline. It's a timeline, right? You have the Old Testament on the one side, and you have the New Testament on the other side. Am I doing that right? No. Old Testament on one side, New Testament on the other side. That it progresses. That as we have the Old Testament law that held people down and bound them by do this and live and all the laws that are read in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, do this. It held people down. They were below, underneath the chains. But this is still true of today. This is still true that we might not necessarily have these Old Testament laws, these Levitical laws that, that used to be the case. But the truth is there are a lot of people out there who don't live under this spiritual law. They could care less about what the Bible has to say about how they should live or think or behave or act. They care less. So you say, how are they under the law? Well, they're under the law of a lot of things, just like you and I are when we forget the gospel and the freedom that we have in the gospel. 
They live under the law, my little L law of self. That I need, I need to get this promotion. I just, I just need to get married. I just need to get pregnant. I just need to have kids. I just need to make this amount of money. And we live and we put ourselves under this law of performance. It could be a law of pleasing others, right? Or anything that just simply isn't Christ. That we submit ourselves, we chain ourselves up to something that isn't Christ and we're held in bondage under it. And what we see here is this language then shifts from slave to son. Luther says it this way. There is the true and proper use of the law. Even though it is not pertinent for this confining in custody under the law, must not last any longer than until the arrival of faith. And when this comes, this theological prison of the law comes to an end. And so what we have is you have people from all the timeline, Old Testament, New Testament, that were slaves and became sons, became heirs. This was true even before Christ, but what was their hope? Their hope was no one was ever saved in the Old Testament by, the, by a sacrifice or by the blood of a bull. We just talked about that walking through Hebrews. Well, what do they do? They put their faith in the covenants. They put their faith in the promised one of God and they move from slavery to sonship, to an heir. Something transforms and they wait forward. They look forward to that day when the Messiah comes. And now we, even though we might not be bound to this big L law of 10 commandments and whatever it may be, I'm submitting myself to, to pleasures and things of this world and maybe even a law on Christian whatever, uh, morals and morality. And if I just do this, I'm a good person. I can't do that. I have to put my faith in the finished work of Christ on him and the cross. And I move then from slave to sonship. Regardless of the timeline, this has always been the case. And this is what the apostle Paul is arguing. Because he's going to shift his language a little bit. And he's going to kind of use, I try to visualize it. And it probably doesn't help. It just makes it worse. But, but I'm just going to keep, keep running with this. Because I made the graphics, so I'm just going to keep going with it. Continuing in Galatians chapter three, it says this. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. That children of God, we read from the NIV uh, most often here at Hope. Uh, and it's a very good, easy reading uh, thing, but it's not the most literal. And so the majority of more literal ones here will use that word son, and that's what it normally would be. So we can read this. So in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is, the, here it goes. There is neither Jew or Gentile. There is neither one ethnicity that's superior than all the other Gentiles. Gentiles just means all other ethne, Jew or any other nation. There's nothing there that we're all equal at the foot of the cross, that we sit around the same table with Christ feeding us. There's neither slave nor free. And this is where he mixes it, because he's not talking about saved and unsaved or moved from slavery to sonship. He's saying literally at this table, there might be people who are physically bound slaves and have masters and there are other people at the same table who are free. We don't make this differentiation that we sit at the same table, we eat of the same food, we eat off the same plate. Nor is there male or female. Anyway, wait, you just called the sons, right? We just talked about that. Is there male or female? For you are all one in Christ, that's family. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And so what he's gonna do, what Paul here is gonna do now is gonna make this new shift that's gonna happen. He's still talking about this someone who's in bondage to the law, who's now an heir, but now there's gonna be a shift 
that goes from boy to man, Old Testament to New Testament. But he gets this idea that all people, all nations, either Jew or Gentile or slave or free or male or female, we're all one in Christ. We're all part of Abraham's seed, not physically descending from Abraham, but we're heirs according to the promise. What was the promise? Going all the way back to the first book of the Bible in Genesis chapter 22. Yahweh, God the Father, promises to Abram, Abraham, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and, though, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. I'm gonna skip this and go back to it. I put it in the wrong spot. The Apostle Paul then continues in chapter four, verse one. What I am saying is that as long as an heir is underage, so now he's going Old Testament, he is no different from a slave. That you, you might be under this law, and you might believe in the promises of God, but man, you're, you're still under this thing. We're not living in a time of full grace. Although he owns the whole estate, the heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time is set by his father. So also, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, when the fullness of time had come, it's, it's a great phrase because there's, there's something that, that happens with that phrase. The fullness of time, when you think about the time when Christ came and he died, I was just talking with Jeremiah about this, the languages that were happening. The, Alexander the Great had just conquered the whole really known world at the time, and everybody spoke Greek. And so when the Bible is being translated and written down, they're writing it in Greek, and it just spreads like wildfire. There's a fullness of time. God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. And Jesus was a Jew under the law. And he lived a law perfectly in a way that no human could to redeem those under the law that we might receive, here it is, adoption to sonship, a name status change. I was recently at a, uh, I don't know what you call it, uh, <laughs> a get together uh, with a bunch of other church pastors, uh, church planners, and, and there was a gentleman there who was from India. He had uh, immigrated from India, moved from India, and uh, he told this story about how he really struggled with his faith when he came to the United States, that he wasn't a Christian when he came to the United States, but in India, he was. And I was like, well, yeah, I, don't, I don't know what you mean. In India, if you're not familiar, they have this caste system, and, and someone asked, like, is it pretty obvious what tier you're in? And he's like, oh, it's very obvious because it's your name. Your, your last name or your surname tells everyone what caste you're in. Are you of privilege or not? And he said, we were actually, my great-grandfather was actually pretty, pretty high up in the caste system, but then he became a Christian. And he had to change his name. He had to, re, who's removed that name, was given a new name, and he said, so for my whole life, I resented my great-grandfather because when I would introduce myself to people, they would go, oh, you're a Christian. There was a shift, and now here it is, an adoption to sonship. My name has changed. I'm now identified with the Father because you are his sons. 
God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but you are God's child. And since you are God's child, you are made also into an heir. Let me go back to this very confusing image. That you have Old and New Testament, people who are under the law, that when they pass through faith into the promises of God, when they pass through faith and believe in the Son of Jesus Christ, they go from slave, someone under the law, bound to sin, can't do anything but sin, and they move into sonship, but then as the times, timeline shifts, that we go from boys to men. Uh, I tried so hard not to do that. I had don't say boys to men written down here somewhere. Whatever, I did it anyways. Just shift. Something happens. Let me read. This is the, a longer quote here from Luther, but I think it's very, very applicable. Luther says this. This rhetorical exclamation and conclusion, as though Paul were saying, now that it is established that we have received the Spirit through the hearing of the Word, and that we can cry in our hearts, Abba, Father, then it is surely defined in heaven that there is no slavery anymore, but sheer liberty, adoption, and sonship. Who produces it? The sigh. He's going to explain what he means by the sigh. How? Because it is the Father who promises. But he is not a father to me unless I respond to him as a son. First, the father offers me grace and fatherhood by means of his promises. All that remains is that I accept it. This happens when I cry out with that sigh. And when I respond to his voice with the heart of a son saying, Father, then father and son come together and a marriage is contracted without any ceremony or pomp. That is, nothing comes in the way. No law, no works demanded here. For what would a man do in these terrors, in this horrible darkness of trial? Saying, if I'm under the law, I have fallen short of the law and I am condemned. What can I say? There is only the Father here promising and calling me his son through Christ, who was born under the law. And I, for my part, accept, reply with a sigh and say, Father. There is no demand here, but only the sigh of the son who grows confident in the midst of tribulation and says, thou dost promise and dost call me son on account of Christ. I accept and call the father. This is becoming a son completely without words. But these things cannot be understood without the experience. Luther's saying here, I can't do anything to earn the love of the father he already loves. I can do nothing to work my way and through the law by myself. It's only through faith in Christ. And it simply comes to a humble heart saying, Father, I can do no else. Places in scripture talk about today is the day of repentance. And if you don't call God Father, today can be the day. I want to read a portion of a book. I, it was, uh, it's been on my bedside for a while, and I haven't read the whole thing. 
Uh, but it's called Gentle and Lowly, and the only reason I'm reading it instead of up there is because I, I found out late last night and my PowerPoint was already done. So uh, it's, a, it's a book called Gentle and Lowly by a guy named Dane Ortland. We actually got a bunch of copies of this for free. So if, uh, it's good, the box comes in soon. Uh, one of these Sundays, we'll just be handing these out. So it's a great, I haven't finished it, but it's been fantastic for what I have read. Let me just read this because if uh, a lot of you potentially have difficulty with that word father. <laughs> uh, my father left me in the sense that he died. Right? God doesn't do that to me. Uh, when we look at uh, maybe it's abuse, maybe it's alcoholic, or maybe you had a really loving father. My dad was very loving. All right, but that word may, think, may make us think other things. Let me just read what Ortland says here. Who is God the Father? Just that, our Father. Some of us had great dads growing up. Other of us were horribly mistreated or abandoned by them. Whatever the cause, the good in our earthly dads is a faint pointer to the true goodness of our Heavenly Father. And the bad in our earthly dads is the photo negative of who our Heavenly Father is. He is the Father of whom every human father is a shadow. Ephesians 3.15 As you consider the Father's heart for you, remember that He is a Father of mercies. He is not cautious in His tenderness toward you. He multiplies mercies matched to your every need and there is nothing He would rather do. Remember, said the Puritan John Flavel, that this God in whose hand are all creatures is your father and is much more tender to you than you are or can be for yourself, end quote. Your gentlest treatment of yourself is less gentle than the way your heavenly father handles you. His tenderness towards you outstrips what you're even capable of towards yourself. The heart of Christ is gentle and lowly and that is the perfect picture of who the father is. The father himself loves you. John 16, 27. That's the Father. And a lot of times we have this thing in our mind, Jesus, man, Jesus is good, he's gracious, he's loving. Jesus is wrath and he's mean. No, the Father sent his son so that we can be adopted, so that we can be called sons, co-heirs with Christ. That someday we are gonna be seated at the table next to Jesus and our brothers and sisters around us and we get to feast together at the table of Christ. Maybe we'll be back in the kitchen cooking. Maybe some of us will be doing dishes. Maybe in heaven, hopefully we still get to cook, but maybe the dishes could just, you know, clean themselves. I don't know. We'll have to do a series on heaven someday. Then we'll get all the answers. I wanna shift to application this idea of family, and what are we? Who are we as a family? Welcome to Olive Garden. When you're here, you're family. You know, sit up straight. Have you gained weight? <laughs> Can you be more like your sister? <laughs> I think that's what we get in our families, right? A lot of time. Uh, looked at families, chaos, and dinner. This was literally the only picture. Everyone else just calmly sitting down, having dinner together, holding hands. Anyone, any hand holders that you pray before your meal and hold hands? No? Okay. My wife's family used to do that, and then we stopped, I think, after all the sisters got married, because all the brother-in-laws, we'd like tickle each other and poke each other and start <laughs> laughing during prayer. <laughs> Sacrilege. It's the second time I've done that today. This is normally what it looks like, right? This is true of a church. 
This is true of a family. We're not perfect. We're not, we're not sinless. Right? We, we all have our own issues. But I hope that we can go to each other and we can say, hey, man, I said this. I'm sorry. Uh, I know I've done that with several of you, multiple occasions, too often probably. Man, I said this thing. I didn't, I didn't mean it that way, but I know I said it and I owe you an apology. I acted a way. I didn't help in this way. Or I, or I think for me, as your pastor, the way that I can apologize is I think I've, I've done a little too much that I haven't let some of you serve in ways that you want to serve. And I'm guilty of that. That's not a selfish thing. I'm doing too much work. Woe is me. No, I, I want you to be able to serve. We've, again, used this language, right, of that we're governance team supported, elder-led, staff run, but we're member mobilized. And I really appreciate a lot of you who have stepped up recently um, in different ways and to be able to serve the body and to serve the family. That's who we are. And there are going to be days where we're going to fight. There are going to be days that we're not going to see eye to eye. We're not going to raise our voices at each other. We're not going to call each other names that, yes, we might be polarized and complete opposite when it comes to politics, when it comes to the different issues, when it comes to, to how we should be handling COVID and fill in the blank. It goes on and on and on. But we can act like adults and we can have conversations and we can show grace. And we can love one another and we can listen to one another. That's how it ought to be. It's our family. I don't get to opt out of my family. I, I, I've never adopted a kid, and I don't think we were planning on adopting a child. But I know that if you adopt a child, I can't just 10 years later say, you know, this didn't really work out. I'm unadopting you. You're, you're, you're no longer my son. I can't do that. I'm legally bound, and that's the same way when it comes to our father. Do you understand that? That it doesn't matter what we do, that if I'm in Christ, I'm forgiven that he loves me, that he wants me to eat at his table. And just like the prodigal son who left home, who spent everything, basically spit in the face of the honor of his father, comes running back and says, Dad, hire me as your servant. And the father's response is, let's party. That's the father. There's no angst, there's no anger, there's no malice. It's only forgiveness and love because of what Christ did, because of what our elder brother did for us on the cross. That's what we get. And the elder brother and the younger brother in that story didn't get along. They butt heads on religion and non-religion and freedom and law and grace. And we do the same thing. But we gotta remember the Father. Gotta remember our family. And gospel application. I just wanna ask you, are you a child of the Father? As I mentioned, as Luther mentioned, there's nothing you can do. Just bow on the knee. It's just, yes, the sigh of, I'm a sinner, and I can't do this by myself. I want to call you Father, not just some weird thing that I call a deity or God. Today could be the day. Secondly, how can we better serve the family with the gifts that the Father has given each of his children? Again, this is in no way trying to guilt or shame or anything like that. I don't want you to think I'm, oh man, why isn't this person served? Why, why, how come, what's going on? I don't, I, don't, I don't think that way. But I think we miss out on an opportunity to really love and to care and to serve one another. How can we do that? Maybe it's cooking or bringing some treats. You know, maybe it's helping out with childcare. Maybe it's doing the soundboard. Maybe it's bringing coffee or whatever it may be. There's so many things that, that there's so many opportunities. Spending time together. Every week here, we celebrate communion. 
we get to take part of that meal. It's family gathering. That in this moment as a church, that when we're partaking of these elements, the, the body that represents, the, or the, the wafer, the bread that represents the body of Christ that was broken for us and the, and the juice which represents his blood that was shed for us to forgive us of our sins, that is a family gathering and that when we're here, we actually are family. Thicker than blood, Dom. So I want to take these elements. I'm going to ask you to invite the worship team to come up. And I'm going to do this like we did a couple weeks ago. We don't normally do this. Uh, but if you'd like to partake of these elements, feel free. Uh, they're in the back, out in the lobby. All I'd ask is that you're a follower of Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you can cry out to God and say, Father, I'd love for you to partake of these elements with us. Uh, you don't have to be a member of this church, any church. I don't, I don't care. Maybe, maybe just now was the first time you referred to God as Father. I'd love to partake of these elements with you. I'm going to read in Matthew from the words of, of Jesus what he says when it comes to, comes to communion. And so we'll partake of these elements, we'll, I'll pray, and then we'll sing hymns together. And then we'll be dismissed, and we will go out from here. Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 26, says this, And while they were eating, Jesus took the bread And when he had given thanks, he, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn like we're about to do, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Let's pray, and then we will sing together. Father, I'm so thankful that I get to call you Father. And you will never leave us, you will never forsake us, you are always here. That even when I, as the prodigal son, wander, deliberately spit in your face, deliberately pursue something else more than you, I'm always welcome back in your arms because you are a loving Father who loves me more than I could ever think or ask. And I get to run to you and you embrace me, not because of anything that I have done or anything that I could possibly do, but because of what your son did for me as his body broken, hung on a tree, and as his blood was poured out for the forgiveness of sins for any who would believe. God, I thank you. I praise you. Would you be honored to worship now as we lift our hearts through song and worship? And it's in your son, Jesus, his most precious name. Amen. Amen.